Hello, Ernest. Hello, Ernest. Hi. So it's been an interesting week for me. Uh, this is actually my birthday, October 8th. Oh, happy birthday. Thank you. And uh, glad we don't have the same birthday or people would assume we were the same person. Um, the um, and I've, uh, I had no idea what we were going to talk about, but I had an interesting insight yesterday on our sister podcast, The Great Reset. Okay. And I thought it might be an interesting topic, building on our conversation last week about moral authority. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things is we're going, we just finished uh, season four of The Great Reset, and uh, we just finally got around to drafting a purpose statement, <laughs> which is kind of interesting after 28 weeks. But uh, in some ways it was good because the uh, we talked a lot about how the challenge is how to bring, build a community around pro-social values. And so while we've been discussing the theory of it on the Two Earnest podcast, I've been trying to work that out in real time on the Great Reset YouTube channel. And so the, and in particular, uh, there's this awkward, hard question, which I can't even formulate clearly in my mind, but I've been living out in practice, which is, Whenever, so we talked about how hard it is to join a community and get it to change its values. The one place where you do get to set the values of a community is when you are a founder uh, or a co-founder, when you're starting a family, starting a business, uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. And the tension is, on the one hand, you need to have a really clear uh, vision of what you are doing to call people and rally them around. On the other hand, if your vision is too much about you and what you want, then people feel excluded and marginalized. So going back to our discussion of the American Revolution, one of the really interesting things is that the Declaration of Independence was not the start of the revolution, but it's more sort of the the capstone of it, right? It started with lots of little emergent networks of communication and incidents and negotiations of various kinds. And so um, and one interesting thing is that they managed to get a, a uh, critical mass of interest and desire, which they then crystallized with the Declaration of Independence. And one interesting artifact of that, I think, is that uh, I don't think we've talked about this, but I remember reading a book called Founding Brothers, which talks about how the American Revolution is unusual in that I think when Aaron Burr shot Alexander Hamilton, that was pretty much the only uh, fraternal blood spilling after the revolution. Everything else was handled sometimes viciously, uh, but still handled without bloodshed in the press and at the ballot box. And I think... <laughs> Oh, I wonder if one of the reasons was is they went through this long period of struggle against the common foe, and then they articulated it in a way that they all felt ownership of. And then the war dragged on for, you know, however many years. And so in addition to, you know, Washington himself being an extraordinary human being, the, 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 the struggle and the sequence of things I thought was quite interesting. And so the interesting place I am with the Great Reset, <clears throat> and even though we have a purpose statement, you know, people 
uh, you have varying degrees of enthusiasm for it and uh, questions about whether it's complete or not, but it at least uh, gives a framework for having certain conversations. And what's interesting to me is what I realized that was actually really helpful, I think, is that I spent the, four, the first you know, four seasons basically trying to live out the values and establish moral authority over this domain. So people, um, well, what's interesting to me, and I think this is actually uh, the difficult trick I'm trying to pull off, is that usually when people do that, they try to play, they, they end up necessarily having to play uh, a status game where, you know, I am the founder, I know what's going on, you should follow me. And with a great reset, I'm very much trying to play the opposite game, is that I am not really a founder in the sense, or a teacher or a leader, I'm more like a steward. Like I have this really, really big problem that I'm trying to solve, and I am mostly clueless about how to solve it. I really need your help. And what was interesting to me that I thought about the interesting topic of discussion is that most of the time, moral authority carries with it an assumption of moral superiority, especially in political and religious spheres, maybe not so much in the business world. But you know, when you think about how when the, uh, the Normans or the Bretons conquered England, uh, you know, th this class system of, you know, these, these people are your betters, right? The noble, the fair, the upper class. And even into the early part of the 20th century, it was still common language to say there's the common people and then there's the better class of people, which is, you know, inconceivable to American ears that we would say one class of people is better. But we also embed that assumption in a lot of our institutions. Mm -hmm. right? A person who has a degree is better than someone who does not. Uh, a person who is rich is better than someone who is poor. Mm -hmm. And we don't explicitly say that, but there is a sense of status and deference around that. And so the, the interesting trick that I'm trying to pull is to say, uh, my moral authority comes not from any particular moral superiority, but from a, except perhaps the one of, um, I make the most public invisible mistakes, therefore I can learn faster. And in the other podcast I recorded, it was funny, a friend of mine uh, was having this dialogue, and he was hesitant to bring up a point, because he says, I hate to uh, show, uh, speak a half-baked idea that may not be entirely relevant. And I said, uh, David, that's in fact, uh, in reflecting back on it, I was saying, you know, that in fact is my entire shtick. All I do is half-baked ideas that may not be entirely relevant, including this one. But I guess the fact that um, I guess maybe the moral authority I am trying to claim or demonstrate is that I care more about the truth than I care about my reputation for being right. And I think that is an interesting um, dimension, which has certain echoes with the open source ethos. You know, I'm posting this, this code not because it's perfect, but because I want your help to find the bugs. And, I, and it occurs to me that is a different type of moral authority than traditional institutions have relied upon. 
Uh, and in fact, that that very reliance may be the reason why these institutions become corrupt is because leaders are asking for that sort of implicit trust. So that was the thought I had, and I wanted to bounce it off of you to see uh, if it resonated at all. Um, I understand. Yes, I, I get uh, your meaning and your um, your experiences. I'm thinking of uh, specific uh, issues or manifestations of this uh, blind belief in moral authority that we place on humans that can never be uh, uh, moral leaders because they're humans. You know, we're all human. We have our flaws and, and uh, institutions that elevate a specific human being above others because uh, that person is or, or says this mistake that uh, all, all that will happen is disappointed. Now, um, we see that in the uh, the Powell, the Jerry Powell Jr. situation and uh, his wife and um, their friends, uh, you know, this person spouses or spouse, um, uh, you know, extreme chastity, you know, sex outside marriage, yada, yada. But, you know, in his personal life and their personal life, they're um, were the exact opposite. So, you know, uh, how did this person gain this? more authority. Well, I guess he inherited some of it, some of it from his father, um, and he did the right things. But you know, in the end, he was still human. He he, he couldn't be genuine to his own uh, proclivities. So you know, he was just playing a role. So that it is important that you know we make sure you know that your definition of more authority. Rely on a person, you know, like just that leadership 
that responsibility, that authority, so that you know people can trust it. People can and make sure that yes, Ernest um, is great. This uh, and now the movement of all all the participants, you know, uh, as you are doing stuff. Communities values, and uh, you know you're flexible to the point, to a certain point, I guess. Um, uh, you know, the community can get behind and and be a consistent and reliable type of leadership. Uh, all the systems that we have, uh, we have corporations, we have nonprofits, we have governments, but there's still uh problems with them so uh, you know the, the idea of having this living system similar to open source uh that uh, you know people can see into it into it and fix it anybody can fix it anybody who, who has the experience and the knowledge can get in there and and identify problems and fix solutions you know solutions that Help uh, processions. It's a, a type of uh, leadership and organization style that uh, could be uh, successful and helpful to humanity. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting when you're talking about that. It occurred to me that really the the reason this is tricky is. Uh, understanding what people mean by the idea of trust. And it comes back to, I think, what you often talk about, how you want all of our systems to be hackable, right? It's not that we expect our systems to be perfect. In fact, it's assumed that our systems are not perfect. And therefore, it's essential that we have the ability to learn how to fix them or modify them to deal with the current situation. And I think mm -hmm. that that is actually the kind of trust we should be having in human beings, right? Trusting in someone does not mean that we assume that they are always right, like the divine right of kings and all that. It means that when they are wrong, uh, we can find out and fix it. And what's interesting, this reminds me of an incident that happened when I was at Apple. It was like my first year there. And uh, I was meeting, this is I think before even Rhapsody had been uh, announced as Mac OS 10. So there's a lot of uncertainty about what was happening, or maybe it was the first year of Mac OS 10. And we were with a customer who was asking for a roadmap. And I was with our head of uh, sales or the area director or whatever. And I said, well, I mean, the reality is we don't have a roadmap. And I thought that the sales rep would chew me out, but the customer was just so offended and said, do you have any idea what that does to me to hear that you don't have a roadmap? And so the sales guy lied very skillfully and said, no, that's not what he made, whatever. But, you know, he made it really clear to me, don't you ever do that again, because that is devastating for our customers. And, like, and what I learned then is that both sides of the relationship not just allow or not even desire, they need to believe things that are not true in order to function. <laughs> you, know, you know, this was 20 years ago. I don't know if that's a little common case now, but... I can believe it is, right? Because 
they need a roadmap to tell their boss and their management. And when I was working at a startup once, you know, I, I had this huge multi-month blowout before they finally realized that the engineering manager just wanted me to make up a roadmap to give her some context of making decisions where it wasn't her fault if it was wrong. Right? I mean, the fact that I was making it up rather than her making it up made her feel better about the situation. And I realized that is how a lot of the world works, uh, is that we have these polite fictions and occasionally someone screws up and treats them seriously, which can cause problems, but it helps people sort of survive and make decisions. And to unwind that is a really, really hard thing on the one hand. On the other hand, if we can unwind that, that could be a really revolutionary thing is if we actually created a space safe enough where people could say, you know, I know we've always said that. I know everyone believes it, but I'm not sure if that's true. And have the default reaction to be, okay, that's interesting. Let's discuss it rather than how dare you. You still there? Ernest, did I lose you? Your audio has been a little choppy, so. I haven't gone back. Oh, there you are. working well. Yes, science, you know, the scientists and most of them work on the principle of this hypothesis theory through until. I'm having trouble hearing you. I don't know if that's just my end and it's recording properly or if you're okay, hear me now? on your end. I can hear you now, yeah. Okay, my T-Mobile team. Uh, I was saying that uh, uh, scientists, they work hard to try to falsify their theories because uh, the failure in that means that the theory you know, uh, uh, appears to be true, and and you keep it will stay like that until somebody is able to. No, now we we have this technology. We can dis we have discovered that no, it is not true. So, you know, forget about it. And then right, the but, so I, 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 yeah, I'll put a caveat on that, but keep going. Yeah, like uh, uh, the the scientists will, uh, well, some of them will resist because you know some some of them have falling in love with that theory. But the other ones, the, the ones that really want to move forward, they will say, oh, okay, well, yeah, I guess it's not true. So let's move on with the new theory and uh, let's just move forward. And right, well, I think there's that, two different phases to this, which is actually really interesting because, uh, keep going, sorry. No, I'm done, go ahead. Okay, yeah, so I think there's actually several different things that go on in practice. And I think it's worth teasing these out because I think this is really important. One is that, Every scientist believes that their own theory is true. Uh, that is the, and they want to demonstrate it's true to other people. And so uh, it is probably, I mean, it's probably exception, but generally, it's generally not wise to assume that a, a scientist wants to prove their theory is false. They want to prove it true. But the second thing that happens is that they also want to maintain their status within the community of, of scientists. 
and therefore they share their results with other people. And scientists are highly motivated, both by personality and by status, to want to prove other people's theory false. And so the interesting thing about science is that it creates this community atmosphere where I let you tell me where I'm wrong as long as I get to tell you where you're wrong. And so one piece of this is the membership in the community that creates this um, counter, the status game, which some scientists internalize to a greater or lesser extent, uh, where uh, being proved wrong is kind of the price of admission. Uh, that's the first point. So it, I think it, a lot of it happens at the individual versus the community level. The second thing, I think we've discussed Kuhn's uh, structure of scientific revolutions, is that it only really works um, to the extent that um, the, uh, the scientific community is um, does not have its identity, or the scientist or the community does not have its identity and power structure wrapped up in a particular interpretation. Um, there's a really tragic story about the invention of black holes, uh, which is a good counterexample to where this goes wrong. Is that uh, I forget, I don't want to mangle the names, but I think it was Chandrasekhar was the Indian scientist who first decided realized that uh, white dwarfs uh, were not stable. That eventually the gravitational pressure would would exceed uh, the, I think the uh, the Pauli exclusion principle force, and that it would crush a white dwarf down to a neutron star. And then a famous astronomer, which I think was Eddings, said this is ridiculous. And if you because if you follow that logic, then eventually uh, everything would be crushed. You'd end up with nothing, which was essentially a prediction of black holes. Uh, but he ridiculed it and ridiculed the scientists making that assumption. And because uh, of the status gains that existed within science and his power base, he was able to, uh, you know, kind of just be incredibly mean. And, and ironically, I think uh, in his own arrogance, he avoided getting credit as a person for inventing black holes by building on the work, uh, choosing instead to ridicule what he disagreed with. And I think that I'd like to think it doesn't happen very often or very large scales but it's probably truer than I would prefer to think that even within science, there are certain ideas and beliefs and positions that are socially unacceptable to hold. And in those cases, the best you can hope for is to at least have all the data published so the next generation who lacks those prejudices can go beyond it. In fact, that's often what happens is when a <laughs> radical new theory is invented the older generation just refuses to believe it or engage with it. But the younger generation, because there is uh, appropriate incentives, uh, they can adopt it and run with it. And the older generation can dis disapprove, but they don't have the power to squelch the ideas entirely. So a couple of interesting things from this. Uh, one is that almost the most useful thing that you can have is an immu immutable data record. Right, so that every time someone discovers something or learns something, or even asks an awkward question, at least you have a record that it happened. Because if you know someone else asked this question before, then it's much easier to ask it again, or to ask it better, uh, and not have, the, the second thing is that you wanna try to uh, have multiple status games and multiple 
decentralized centers of power. Mm. So that if any one person, uh, you know, doesn't like an idea, they have limited ability to thwart it. And I guess the third thing is, uh, as you saw, is building up this cultural value of, um, you know, he who uh, learns the fastest wins. Uh, they say one of the great things about the bureaucratic uh, system of China was that bright individuals were highly prized because they helped you be more effective against your opponents. And so there was a fierce competition for talent in China in a very meritocratic way. And even if there was a lot of corruption uh, at the top levels, there was at least a sense in which anyone uh, could advance based on merit. Um, and because they had many competing fiefdoms, fiefdoms within the empire. And so uh, I guess some interesting corollaries of this is that we talked about omniculture an episode or two ago. And like, so one of the, it's interesting, what is the minimal set of attributes that would make for a culture's participation in the omniculture? And one, one simple one would be, and again, I don't know if this is practical or necessary or sufficient, but is that you just publish uh, an immutable record of your decisions and your metrics so that everyone internally and externally can see what was done. Mm -hmm. and, and, the, uh, and then you create some sort of rituals around it where uh, the fast learning, and you know, we're getting closer to that and with all the natural experiments we're doing uh, with public health during the COVID-19 pandemic. But it's interesting to think about, um, um, you know, that is again, another thing that you get from GitHub and open source is this idea of at least you have a history of whatever else has happened before and also all the pull request decisions around it. And that might be a fun discussion sometime to talk about what would GitHub for civil society look like? I know people have done GitHub for legislation, uh, which is not a bad idea at all, uh, except that um, it's hard. There's also around deliberative democracy systems like that. Uh, that would be another direction to go into is to talk about what sort of uh, digital democracy tools and systems would lead to the right kind of pro-social status games. So anyway, um, uh, that was the end of my walking the dog. Anything else that any other thoughts you had or questions you wanted to ask? Uh, uh, well, before going, how's your dog doing? Interesting. Yes, we are going to try to reach uh, harmony between my older dog and the younger puppy who invaded our house a month ago. And what's interesting is uh, this is it offends my egalitarian sensibilities, but I think this is clearly the right way for it to happen. The solution is for the older dog to dominate the younger to the, and the dog, younger dog to totally submit. And if that happens, then they can live in peace. And until that mm -hmm. happens, there will always be conflict. And so they've already shown signs of doing that. So we're going to try and have a supervised encounter next Monday. But it's a really weird thing, getting back to our original comment, that like, you know, it, it strikes us against uh, what we think of as an old order, but the reality is, is that, you know, actually knowing your place in the hierarchy is enormously comforting, right? Because it tells you which decisions you have to worry about, which ones you don't have to worry about, and at least you know where you belong. Mm 
And there's a lot of security there. And that's why this is hard. And I'm finding this hard in my own relationships, uh, including with my kids, is like when I want them to step up, on the one hand, they want more power and more freedom. On the other hand, they are also reluctant to take on that responsibility. And so I have to learn, and this is a hard challenge, um, how to create that sort of meta security in their identity uh, and their place so that, you know, having to deal with my flaws and weaknesses and having to ask hard questions is difficult, but doable. And it is a, I have this theory that intellectually we're very different than dogs, but emotionally we're extremely similar, which is why we can relate to them so well. And these issues of dominance and submission and belonging and threat are kind of uncomplicated by ideals uh, as the dogs sort things out. So hopefully by next Thursday, I will have some progress and uh, we will give you something, will give us something more to chew on. No pun intended. <laughs> Thanks for uh, asking. Oh, no problem. Uh, one of the uh, ideas that I think you know, uh, myself as a non-religious person, uh, I'm thinking, well, how do you uh, build communities that are loyal and um, cohesive um, when religious uh, communities have that the already um, and there are ideas about that them together. Um, but that don't have that, you know, something like a religion to, uh, uh, to say that, you know, that I've uh, discovered that there are several uh, communities that are not, you know, Right. 
uh, welfare of its members? That's something that's in my head. Thinking. Oh, that's a that's a fantastic question. Um, and it's a great one to think about. Uh, you know, how do you organize society? And we can start you know next week by discussing some of the concrete historical examples of how they worked or didn't work. Uh, the book mm-hmm. about ultra society talks about some of the transitions over time, which I found very useful. And the author is an atheist, but he also acknowledges that you know uh, monotheistic belief in a all-seeing God who punishes you for doing wrong was an incredibly valuable and powerful tool for maintaining a cohesive society. Um, <laughs> but he's also very interested in finding alternatives, as am I, actually, because I think that um, there's some downsides to theism as much as I believe in it. And so um, that will be a great topic to talk about next week, then. All right. All right. Thank you, Ernest. Have a great week. Thank you.